Welcome to the Peak Multifamily Funding Podcast with your host, Anton Matley. This is the place to learn how to finance your multifamily deals and make it happen. Learn from experts how to finance your deals, avoid pitfalls, and build a multifamily portfolio. Welcome everyone uh, to Ins and Out of Multifamily Finance. Today we have a special guest, uh, Eric Ballin, and he is a very interesting uh, character. I'll let uh, him introduce himself, but he certainly has a very interesting career, both professionally and then in real estate investments. Uh, so please, uh, Eric, uh, go ahead, introduce yourself. Hey, Anton, thank you so much for having me on the, on the show. I appreciate it. So I'm from... I'm from Massachusetts originally. I live here in Texas now. So I'm a real estate investor. I got started in 2009. I bought my first three family. It's a triplex. Anybody from Northeast knows that that's, uh, they're called triple deckers. And so that's how I got, that was my first property. And I'm sure we'll, we'll dive into the real details of all that a little bit more, but uh, just some, some quick background on me. I am married. I have two kids, two beautiful daughters. Uh, I do have a master's degree. I have an MBA. Um, I was working on my PhD in economics when I discovered real estate and uh, actually ended up leaving that program in order to, to swing a hammer and, uh, <laughs> and uh, do real estate full time. It was kind of crazy at the time, but that's how I got started, especially because I was back during a recession and uh, leaving a good cushy future, even in a recession for uh, the risks of real estate was kind of something crazy. But uh, yeah, so that's, I mean, that's kind of where I come from. Yeah, very good. And you also served our country, right? So you were uh, on yes. multiple yep. tours. So I spent, uh, I spent 11 years in the in the Army National Guard. I did a, a tour in Afghanistan, 2010-11, and uh, you know I've been did training all over the country and all over the world, a lot of places with them as well. And I got out uh, just a little bit over a year ago. Thank you for your service. And uh, I think that it's an interesting background, which uh, I think uh, you probably had the right attitude when you were in the army that you saved money, so do you, that you had money to invest, right? So mm -hmm. which is, uh, I think, a very important message to, to, to young people, whether they are starting in their own profession or whether they are in the army or wherever it is, uh, rather yeah, than just spending the money on silly items. You, you put it to the side and that helped you to start your investment career. Right? Yeah, absolutely. You can, you can actually see, uh, so when you deploy overseas, you don't have a lot to spend your money on. And so when you come back, you have a lot of money saved. You know, it's testament that anybody with a decent job could really save up a lot of money during the year if they just put themselves in the situation, stop spending it. Uh, really, I didn't earn more money than most other people, but I was just saving it all. And my wife was being very frugal too. And this was 2010 and into 11, we had already owned our three families. So she was living there, having the tenants pay the mortgage and stuff. And then she was just saving every dollar and I was saving every dollar. And then when I came back, we had, we had a lot of money saved and, and all the soldiers I deployed with a, you know, uh, in my platoon, I was a platoon leader. We had uh, 40 people in it and I would probably say out of those 40 people, probably 35 of them wasted their money. Yeah. <laughs> within within uh, six months or 12 months of coming back. And, and a few people were responsible, but the majority of people weren't. And, you know, something like that can set you up for life. So, yeah, no, we absolutely saved every dollar and invested. As soon as I got home, invested it in. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, 
that's great, right? And uh, you, I remember uh, you, you mentioned once uh, what when really your light bulb went off that being a real estate investor makes makes absolutely sense when someone knocked on your door, yeah. right? Uh, yeah, so maybe you can tell that story. <laughs> yeah, so I mean that that's kind of what set me off. So originally the plan was that. Uh, since I was a PhD student, the plan when we bought the house is, well, you know, we got married. So what, what do married people do? They buy a house, right? That was the thought. And I was just, I had no different mindset or mentality than anybody else. We couldn't qualify for a loan because my debts were too high. My income was too low. So we ended up getting a three family because the extra rent went uh, toward income on our loan when you go uh, for FHA or regular conventional loan. Uh, so that get us over the hurdle and we were able to get the house. So that's why we bought the three family. And, uh, and then the, the story I like to tell is we were sitting watching TV one night and it, you know, it was late at night and this is not a great part of the city and somebody knocked on my door. I'm like, who, who is that? Nobody <laughs> walks around this neighborhood at night. So, um, anyways, I opened the door. It was one of my tenants there to pay the rent. And, and I, uh, I wrote them the receipt. I put the money down on the table and you know, I'm like, I cannot remember what we were watching for TV, any of the details of that day, but I remember so specifically that by the end of the night, I remembered just having this epiphany that I, that was the easiest money I ever earned. I want, I want money to come to me like that. All right. Mm-hmm. I want my, I want every month, all the money I earn, I want someone to come knock on my door and give it to me. Right. That's the best way to earn it. I don't want to have to go chase money. Like I had been doing my whole life up to that point, hustling for money, trying to work hard, extra hours, you know, in doing these things, I just wanted it to come to me. And so that's when the mindset fundamentally changed. And I discovered passive income, essentially. I mean, it was as a landlord and living in a property, it's not really passive, but it was comparatively passive to what I had done up to that point. And I'm like, this is what I'm doing for the rest of my life. Absolutely. So have you invested in, in other investments other than real estate? Or have you been primarily focusing on, on real estate? Yeah, so uh, I've invested in stocks before. And uh, I do have a little bit of money in stocks, not much. The vast, vast majority of my money is in real estate, but I've been trying to diversify a little bit more just to have some alternate, uh, more liquid uh, cash invested. I My first experience in investing was in probably August or September of 2008 mm-hmm. is when I took all of my life savings at $20,000 and I put it into a couple funds. For anybody who was investing back then, you remember Lehman Brothers collapsed shortly, uh, sure. yeah. shortly after that. And basically overnight, I lost half of its value. Yeah. Half of my whole life savings was gone. And uh, I mean, I, I had read plenty of books. I wasn't an economic student, economist. And so I understood dollar cost averaging and, and I moved my money from conservative funds over to the aggressive fund. And I kept doing that. And uh, I was able to recover that money, you know, pretty quickly within six or eight months. And uh, then I sold it all and I took my cash and put it in the bank. And yeah. it took me like another five <laughs> years before I ever invested in stuff. Like yeah, that. I can imagine. Yeah. We all went through that pain back then, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was only 20, 23 years old at the time, so it was... Yeah, so. a big shock, yeah. Yeah, it was. So the real estate side uh, seems uh, has, has gone much better for you. So I, I assume that your first investment, uh, you, you have obviously had a, a loan that was provided to you and it was your own savings that you... Mm-hmm. Uh, also put into play. So how how did that work out after you uh, came up with the decision? This is the epiphany. Well, this makes sense to me. Let's expand our portfolio. How so? How did you go about it in getting additional equity into play and right. and also get the, the debt covered? 
Yeah. So what, back then around 2009 into 2010, uh, I called the bank and I said, Hey, I want to, I want to get more loans. And, uh, what do I got to do? And so they, they said, well, you don't qualify for personal loans. So why don't you talk to the commercial lending division in our bank? And I said, okay. So I didn't really know. So I talked to this guy and I said, what do I have to do to qualify? And he said, well, and he listed off some, some criteria. And uh, basically the one criteria that I didn't meet at the time was they required two years of investing experience or as landlord experience. Mm-hmm. And I said, and he's like, you have like six months of experience. So come back to me later. <laughs> and so I, I wrote down his name and I wrote down his phone number. And two years later, I called him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, this is how that happened. So when I came back from Afghanistan on money, I invested. The first thing I did was I did a flip because I thought that's how you're supposed to do real estate. Spent six months doing that and I earned like $3,000. So I didn't do very well on it. So I, I gave that up. Mm-hmm. And then the next property I bought was a, was a four family because I was familiar. I had three family. I had flip experience. So I kind of combined the two. And I, uh, I bought a four family for crazy cheap. I identified a property that had really bad management issues, got it for less than like 40% of its real value, did barely any work to it. Uh, I paid cash for it. Then just a few months later, I was able to refinance it and I took out all of my equity uh, and that I invested plus some. And then that's kind of what, that, that was the system I ultimately used and just kept kind of snowballing that over and over again. Mm-hmm. Were these properties in bad shape or were they just mismanaged where you saw uh, that there was value there without going into, into really heavy rehab type of mm-hmm. assets? Yeah, so the first one was just a management play. It was owned in a family. The, the mother, uh, the, uh, the matriarch or whatever, moved to Florida to retire, left the property for her son to manage, who became a heroin addict. And he was mm-hmm. renting it out to anybody doing it, anything just to get a few bucks. And uh, the property is in great shape because the mother had taken care of it all those years. You know, the bones were really well. It needed, it needed some new carpeting, new floors and paint and like that kind of stuff. But uh, they had the worst of the worst people in there. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, on a larger multifamily, you, it's really hard to just go vacate 100 people and, and then replace it. But on a four family, you can do that. So we just kicked everybody out and put about $15,000 worth of work which is for four units is nothing. Yep. And uh, just put all decent people into it. And then we turned a property. I bought it for $65,000. It appraised just a couple months later for 180. Wow. And that property now is worth 300,000. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a great story, right? Uh, I think also what uh, helped you in, in that situation is that you really knew that local market, yeah. right? So mm-hmm that you knew what you got into it. So congratulations on that. So uh, how, how did you progress from there? So obviously you bought more three and four plexus uh, yep. and, and then how did it go from there? Yeah, so basically the, the way that, it, that it, uh, it worked is, is I realized I had a decent system. I could have very little money invested in a deal because I was refinancing it out. Um, and I kept doing this over and over again. So that was around 2012. The market was basically at its bottom. So those first deals were really good, really easy with a lot of money. And then the market started picking up and I had to get a little bit more creative. And so I, I basically carved out a niche where I would take on the properties that had structural issues. And that's what I became really good at is I would find properties that nobody would even walk into. And they're just too scared of whatever structural problem it is. And, uh, and then I would take those properties on. I, I ended up getting my contractor's license, had a crew working for me, and we were able to take on stuff that might have cost somebody else $20,000 to fix the structural issue, and I'd do it for like $1,000. And yeah. so I could have all kinds of value that I was able to create 
doing that. And that became my niche uh, all the way up until I moved to Texas. Okay, very good. And you, I assume that you refinanced all these properties through through conventional residential loans. Is that no, right? Those or were all. I, all of those were actually uh, commercial loans. Oh, they were already commercial loans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there, there was a local bank. There's a couple local banks that were willing to use commercial debt on small deals like that. Yeah. So it was really I couldn't find. Cause these are all, you know, you're talking a couple hundred thousand dollars or less. Right. Yeah. So you, you really had to, I had to find somebody that was very local, local community bank, five to eight branches usually. And I build a personal relationship with them in order to get the, the financing that I needed. On okay. Deals. Very good. So that was more attractive than going with uh, residential investment loans. Well, so it's, it, they actually charge a little bit higher interest rate than, than what you could get on a personal side, yeah. but they, they use all the same underwriting that you would see in a larger multifamily deal. So mm. they're, they're looking at its debt service coverage ratio and you know what it's like, and they're, they're not really underwriting you as much as they're underwriting right. the property. Mm. And so it's very attractive as far as from a growth perspective, uh, I could pay an extra half a percent um, or a, ha- a half a point on the loan in order to, it's not on my credit report. And it's in the LLC and there's basically unlimited growth potential. Yeah, that's a very good point, right? So your uh, DTI uh, didn't really matter for that, right? right. Mm-hmm. Uh, which very often restricts the investors on, on the residential side because Absolutely. their DTI just doesn't support additional investments. right? Mm-hmm. And that's what I tell people when people ask me, how do you grow? And I, and I say, well, the fastest, as fast as you can get over to commercial financing, the better and the faster you're going to grow. So if there's no lenders in your area that will do the deal size, then increase the deal size to whatever you can find in your, in your market. Yeah. Very good point. So uh, what happened next? So uh, you did that mostly up in Worcester, right? Massachusetts. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then you moved to Texas and you have been focusing more on larger multifamily deals uh, since yep. then. So maybe you can tell our listeners a little bit how you approach this and what you have done so far. Mm-hmm. So when I came to Texas, I, uh, I was still had this, this small multifamily mentality. Uh, I got, actually got a job when I moved to Texas because we, like I said, I was a realtor. I owned a contracting crew. When they weren't working for me, I had them working for other people to, to pay their wages and stuff. And I wasn't sure that the income that I had would cover my living expense. So I got a job and I did sales for about a year and uh, bought some more property during that year until I was comfortable with the income that I had from it. And then I quit the job. And as soon as I quit the job, I started networking here in the Texas area. And almost immediately I discovered the concept of syndicating, which I had read about, but didn't really know people actually did that. I thought it was just something you read about in the books. And I'm like, wow, people like a lot of people do that. And so I dedicated, I said, I'm going to, I'm going to syndicate a deal. And, uh, and then my wife got pregnant and I, I don't know. I didn't have the energy. This was with our, with our second kid. I didn't have the energy and she needed a lot more help around the house. I, I kind of tabled that and just learned about it, but I didn't really do it until the following year in 2017, last year, at the beginning of the year, my uh, second daughter was born in December, 2016, 2017. I said, this year I'm going to syndicate a deal. And then I did by the end of the year, I was, I was uh, one of general partners on the deal. So I realized that I could take, just basically take what I was, I was doing and I'm just magnifying it up like, you know, 10X, 5X, 10X type 
Yeah, very good. Up in Massachusetts, you did it all on uh, by your own, right? You and your wife were were essentially the two that that did all by yourselves. Now with uh, Texas deals, I believe that you partnered up with others in order to to get access to these deals, but also to raise the funds. Right. Yeah. So we had. Um... I mean, we, we had, we had borrowed money from friends and stuff to get our first couple deals going. And we, when we needed the cash, when my money wasn't enough and I just said really, really close friends, I'm like, Hey, you got $40,000. Can I borrow it? I'll pay you a really good interest rate. And you know what, if I, if I lose the deal, I'll pay you personally out of it. And they trusted me. So that's kind of how I got some deals. And we did mm-hmm. some stuff with family too, like that. And uh, so we kind of raised money for on like very informally. Uh, but we didn't really form, do a formal capital raise or anything until we until we did that first syndication. And absolutely, partnering with people was the was the key to doing a deal that size, because there's no way I could do it myself, and I didn't know enough about these things. I got myself into trouble, and so and uh, sure. So by having partners, they could you know they could kind of lead the process, and I can kind of learn along the way. Mm-hmm. So uh, with the other partners, so did you split up the responsibilities and everyone had to raise a certain amount of the total equity raise or how did you guys arrange yourself? Yeah, so we basically set our own goals. So the way it started is I was looking for deals in the Dallas market and then I met somebody at a conference and he was looking in other markets but wanted to be in the Dallas market and, and um, we just got the chatting and then once in a while he'd be underwriting a deal and he would... Um, and he would call me up and be like, hey, Eric, what do you think about this deal or whatever? And then just kind of talk about how I got into the partner partnership. And then, you know, he eventually, every time there's a deal he was looking at, he was calling me. And then one day we were both going to put an LOI on the same deal. And he said, well, mm-hmm. we kind of already been talking to each other for a long time. You want to put it together? And we, so we did. We didn't get that deal. But that kind of is what created the, the partnership essentially for the next deal. And then uh, we got onto a conference call with several other people in other markets that he was working with. And we said, well, if we all partner together, we can go after a way bigger deal. Mm-hmm. So when it was just me and him, we were looking 60, 70, 80 units. When we got five of us together, we were looking at, you know, 100, 150 units. Mm-hmm. And then we essentially just all talked about what did I think I could raise? What did you think you could raise? And we all set our own goals. And then we all looked at our own markets. And then the, the agreement that we had, the verbal agreement, um, was that whoever finds the first deal will take the lion's share of the of the general partnership. But because we're all working, we're all at least get a piece and come together on that deal. Mm-hmm. Very good. And did all the partners meet the, the goals when it came to, to the equity raise? Or did you have some, some issues there where some were, were not really reaching the goal that they mm-hmm. initially attempted to reach? Well, on that first deal, we had one partner who was, who was shy of the goal. He ended up, I'm not sure exactly what he did. He fixed it. He got, I don't know if he partnered up with somebody. He figured something out and he did reach his goal eventually. Uh, so everybody met or exceeded their goal. Yeah, very on good. First cap, on that yeah. first capital. Actually, we all uh, ended up raising a lot more. Because we were supposed to raise some of the capital from a crowdfunding site. And, uh, oh, really? Okay. Yeah, and, uh, I, won't, I won't mention it because they didn't perform. They couldn't raise their, what they agreed to, to raise. And so uh, we ended up all having to raise that capital that they didn't raise. So we all ended up exceeding our goals. Well, some people uh, way more than others. That's great. Yeah. So uh, for for the smaller properties up in Massachusetts, you you could go to friends and families, right? More the close circle that you were in. 
were you also approaching the same people for for the raise here for the larger deal, or did you expand your your reach to to, uh, to prospective investors? Right. So what I did is when once I decided that I was going to be raising capital and doing a syndication, I started building my list of people. And so every networking event that I went to, I would try to meet one or two people. And then I'd either have a phone conversation or sit down with them for coffee or something and then qualify them and then add them to my mailing list. So for a year, about a year, I was building my list and that's what I raised from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I didn't really use my friends and family. Uh, most of them, uh, even though they're close friends and family and I would use them on a personal deal, they, they weren't, they wouldn't meet the sophisticated, um, okay. just cause they're not in the, in the industry really. So. Okay. Very good. So you, you raised a combination of money from accredited investors as well as sophisticated investors. Yes. Yep. Mm. It was a, it was a five or six B. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Uh, how did you uh, arrange the, the debt structure, the debt financing on the deal? Yeah, so that wasn't my, my role. That was one of my other partners who, who headed that up. But we did do a, a Freddie, Freddie loan. So we did have to raise the capital on all the, on all the rehab. As far as the exact, uh, I do have, I have the term sheet somewhere. I don't know. I don't remember it off the top of my head exactly what interest rate and stuff that we got. But um, we did end up going with the Freddie because it had a lower rate. And when we crunched it out, raising the capital versus having the, the higher interest rate, it worked out better to raise the capital. Um, and plus to have the extra cash on hand, if there is a change in the economy or whatever, it would give us more flexibility. Yeah, makes sense. So that was a Freddie small balance loan then? No, it would have been a regular Freddie, I think. It was a regular what, Freddie. What's the limit on a small balance? Uh, it's uh, depending on the market and the property size, it's six million or seven and a half million. Oh, then it probably was SPL. Yeah. Yeah, so that's the uh, the disadvantage of that SPL program that you cannot build in rehab money. Yeah, but yeah, okay, uh, so but, but some of the advantages is that you get very attractive interest rates uh, compared to uh, to the Fannie program, uh, particularly in some markets. Right, so it's always good to to compare the two. But uh, obviously, you guys were able to to get the loan that you needed and you were able to close. And that's the, that's the important uh, part there. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Especially because interest rates have been going up. So that's right. we, there was a, it was a little iffy on just what the interest rate would be before we locked. Okay. Very good. So if you had to wait with the rate lock, then maybe it was not the small balance, right? Because the small balance you actually are able to rate lock when you apply for the loan. Uh, yeah, like you said, that wasn't my particular job. Yeah. No sure. Yeah. So the, uh, uh, I wish I gave you a little bit more information yeah. about it, but it was, uh, yeah, that was. Kind That's of- all right. No problem. So uh, were there a number of people that had to sign on the loan? Were you also one of them or uh, were there some other key principles as they're called for these agency loans? That- yeah. So in order to make, make the requirements, the, uh, uh, I didn't sign on that loan and because we had, we did have to pull on some key principles for the, for the, uh, the net worth portion of it. Mm-hmm. So, so I ended up, they didn't want to have too many people. So we only ended up, I ended up not doing it. I was one of the smaller capital raisers. So. Yeah. Okay. Very good. But it uh, doesn't matter really. Right. So that, uh, I think it's an important aspect here to also show our listeners that the teamwork element here really came into play. Right. Mm-hmm. So you could not have done that deal by yourself. Right. No. So you had to team up with others uh, at the same time, you also brought a lot of value to to the team 
uh, as a whole to to get the deal done. So yeah, absolutely. So the you know the value that I brought, the way I set myself apart is basically I became the guy that anytime there was a deal in Dallas, that anybody wanted to look at, they knew I knew how to underwrite the deals. I knew every property that was on the market at that time. Uh, so anything that was up, I had already looked at. And so I, that was the value I brought. And if you wanted to be in Dallas, it made sense to give me a call. Yeah. Yeah. The value that I brought. So. Yeah. Very good. Uh, now I think you, you did uh, another larger deal recently. Is that right? Yeah. So it's the same group of people we did. Yeah. Um, basically this, the same seller that sold us the first property. As soon as we closed on that one, they immediately wanted to sell the next one that they had. And so we basically had, uh, it was it was tough. We had to pull on some extra partners um, because we I had already exhausted my list. Everybody had already exhausted their 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 capital mm -hmm. raise list, and so it, it was a bigger deal that cost more. And so we had to pull on some bigger a bigger partner who could could handle that. And so it's kind of how that worked out. But it's essentially the same same exact story, same loan uh, setup, except for it was larger, so it was definitely not SBL. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Uh, so here that uh, also shows when you can close that uh, your reputation in the marketplace really increases very quickly, right? So uh, the brokers are serious uh, about you. They know that you can close. And obviously here the owner himself or herself decided that you are good buyers. Right? Yeah, we actually had the, uh, we didn't have the highest offer on the second deal. It was, uh, we were like $100,000 less than the other guy. And so the seller decided to go with us, our group, because we had already closed the previous one with them. So they decided to take the, the offer that they knew would close or they believed would close. Yeah. So looking back through, uh, through the investments that you have done in Massachusetts and now here in Texas, what would you say has worked really well and what has not worked that well? Yeah. So obviously there's a couple things. So doing that, adding that appreciation, adding that value and refinancing is a really great way to get your cash out and keep reducing it. Uh, so if you can have a deal and that can be in play and you can feel confident that you're going to have the opportunity to refinance it, I highly recommend that. Um, but you know, one of the most things, the biggest thing that worked for me was just changing my mindset. So I always felt that real estate was like a, like a, a lone wolf kind of, game that you play and you don't talk to other people you don't uh you don't share your your knowledge or anything because someone's going to steal your ideas and they're going to take your next deal right and that was kind of the mindset i had and then i uh, i changed that mindset and i started sharing any knowledge i had with anybody who wanted it and then i started networking with people and building relationships and i can say that uh a it's just a lot it's a lot better for my personal life because I have a lot more friends mm -hmm. in, you know, in the real estate market because I'm not afraid to talk to them about it. And my business has grown a lot faster since changing my mentality. So I would say definitely focus on cooperating with people and building a team rather than doing it yourself. Yeah, that's a very good point, particularly on the residential side, right? And uh, we hear it a lot from the flippers. Uh, that they do not want to share information because they always fear that someone is, is grabbing a deal from them. It's crazy because this, there's, as far as multifamily, like comp, apartment complexes, and stuff, there's so many fewer deals in that space. And for house flipping, there's like millions and millions of deals. So it's, it's crazy to think that the people with access to unlimited number of deals basically have that mentality, but the people 
with fewer deals are way more collaborative in nature. It's just, yeah. just weird. Yeah. And uh, we see that all the time, right? Uh, the teams that uh, team up with others, uh, they, they are successful, right? So obviously you have done that and uh, that's, that's really great. Uh, are some things that you can tell uh, our listeners what what they really should avoid in terms of actions uh, that you have taken where you say, oh, that doesn't make sense and I'm not going to do that anymore? Yeah, uh, house flipping. <laughs> That's fun. <laughs> uh, no, people make a lot of money doing it. I never liked it. Uh, you know, I, I made, especially on a small side, I made a lot of mistakes um, trying to trying to work with friends and family or renting to to people that you probably shouldn't be renting to because you know them. Uh, things like that. Try to keep your business and personal stuff separate. Uh, th those are really the lessons that I learned most. Yeah. Just kind of like, you know, if you have management, you don't really see it. But when you're dealing with people, tenants and stuff, you realize everybody's out. Like they, and no matter how good of friends you are with, with them, as soon as there's money involved, people will just stab you right in the back. It's the craziest sure. thing. Yeah. So build good relationships with people and don't like try, try not to involve business with people that you would rather have as friends. Like first, yeah. So in, in your path to, to your success, uh, what have you used in terms of tools, books, or websites, or other, other items that, that have helped you to, to grow and become what you are today? Yeah, I mean, there's, I read constantly. I'm always reading on the internet. So it's hard to come up with something that's, that's one thing in specific to, to recommend, but there was a... a one thing that, uh, one book, there's one phrase in one book, and it's worth buying just to read it from him. Um, it's called The Psychology of Selling by Brian Tracy. That, mm -hmm. that book basically, in, inside it, in, in one of the chapters, he says that in a salesperson, but it can apply to anybody, um, generally earns plus or minus 10% of what they think they're worth. So if they think that they should earn $50,000 a year, they're going to earn right around $50,000 a year. And his evidence was basically in a commission only sales environment, people, if they came in in the morning and they made, they crushed the day and they made a ton of money, they'll leave at lunch. And other people who they're not making any money, they'll stay till midnight until they reach their goals. And he said, really, you should flip that on the days that you're making a lot of money. You should stay all day long and, and really maximize that. And the days you're not making money, you should leave. Mm -hmm. And they use it as evidence to show that basically once you achieve your goal, you stop working. And so if you want to grow, you have to change your own self, your own perception of yourself and what you're worth to, to grow. Very good point. Yeah. So the next question is one that I ask uh, all our guests. Have you been involved in a deal that went sour? And what can you share with, uh, with our listeners uh, from that deal? And if no deal went sour. What was your recipe for success that it didn't go sour? Yeah. Well, I, I wish I could say I've never had a bad deal. So I've never, I've never just straight lost money on a deal. So I've, I've done stuff where I just didn't really earn anything and it wasn't worth my time. Uh, but more recently, the, the biggest thing that's been bothering me lately is I bought a, I bought a two family just last year uh, only because it's right next to four other properties I own, like literally right next door. So it made sense to add, it costs nothing extra to, to manage one more property on the same street. So I, I bought it and uh, it needed a lot of work. Well, I bought that like June of last year and it's, it's still not fully occupied because the wow. project's still going on. So it's taken up so much of my energy and so much of my effort to get this 
to family online. And I've done, you know, I bought other larger deals. I did the two syndications since then. I, I bought a, a five family since then and all these other things I've done. And so I realized sometimes you don't just get something because it's kind of makes sense. Like, it's really got to stand on its own, even if it's right next door to, to what you already have. So have you identified why it is that difficult to bring it online? Because uh, whether it's a two uh, family or whether it's uh, a hundred unit property, right? It's, mm-hmm. if, if you have delays and you do not really are able to, to capture that, that value early on, you, you run into trouble, whether it's a small property or a large one. So what is it? what didn't work there that, that you have been struggling with it? Yeah, so, so basically I didn't, I didn't uh, follow my normal recipe. So I wanted to try to go big. And so I had a, I had a property manager at the time. Uh, so I was testing out a new property manager and they wanted to learn and grow a little bit as far as uh, managing projects. So I said, well, why don't you try to put this project together for me? That was my first mistake. I was trying to have a person who's never managed a project try to figure out project management and I'm the one paying the bill. So that was the first mistake. Uh, the second mistake was my normal recipe is that I take these properties and I, this particular one had no major um, um, structural issues, but the interiors just needed to be rehabbed and then rented out. And uh, there was an attic that was partially finished that I thought I could add four bedrooms to the second floor and make it, a, and make it a, like a six bedroom apartment. And so we, we experimented with that and basically tried to create two options. But it was really hard to get contractors to be able to envision these two totally separate projects and prices on both of them. So that took forever to do. Then I ended up deciding to go with the smaller projects because once we did get it all figured out, financially it didn't make sense to go for the larger one. I should have already known that, but I wanted to, to try it out anyway. And then the guy that I was supposed to be doing the management was mad at me because he spent all this time going, trying to figure out the second project. Um, So that, that went sour. And then I ended up having to manage it myself. And then, I mean, it's just like this cascade of events that, that just kept going on and on and on. And it just seemed to, yeah. Never end okay. <laughs> so, so it appears, right? You you kind of veered off from from of your proven model that you have yes. done before, and you tried to do something different. I would say uh, I have seen that a, a number of times on the multifamily side too, when someone comes in and really wants to change the the property around from a C class to maybe a, a lower A or an upper B class property. Uh, with with heavy rehab, sometimes twenty twenty five thousand dollars per unit, and I have seen the seen that a number of occasions where they also have been struggling with with these type of properties, right. even though they were very successful in just the soft rehabbing of C class properties, right? Because they just weren't able to to really understand how much money should you spend in order to get the rent bump from a completely new tenant base. Right, right yeah. I, I can tell you just the, uh, I actually never thought about it from that perspective until you mentioned it to me. Mm-hmm. And then it's absolutely true because every time that I've veered off and tried something new rather than staying focused on what I'm, what I'm good at and growing in that direction, uh, that's always been the, not the issue where I would lose money, but that I like, didn't earn the money that I should or could have earned if I yeah. just stayed focused on what I already knew. Yeah. Okay. Very good. 
So, uh, Eric, I think you, you added tons of value today. I really appreciate the uh, time you have uh, spent with us. Uh, I know that you have your own website. You are uh, an active writer, right? You put yeah. a lot of information out. And uh, so I think it's, uh, a lot of it is very valuable information. So why don't you share your website and contact details so that people can reach you? Yeah, so if you want to check out my website, it's idealrei.com, idealrei.com. Uh, or you can find me on social. If you just look up my name, Eric Bolin, you can find me. I'm on, uh, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Pinterest, I'm on Instagram, and, and I'm on Facebook. Uh, so you can, you can find me there uh, just by looking up my name. And you can, if you want to contact me, email me. You just go to my website, this contact form. Just, just shoot me an email right through that. Yeah, very good. Thank you very much, Eric. Again, uh, appreciate uh, you taking your time talking with me and all the best with your future real estate ventures. Thanks. Appreciate it. Peak Multifamily Funding thanks you for listening. Tune in each week for advice and interviews that will help you bring your multifamily portfolio to the next level. Are you ready to make it happen? Go to peakmff.com to sign up for our multifamily finance newsletter and the link to our Facebook page.